Hey, before I forget, I do want to uh, announce that we are very excited to share with you the budget. There are hard copies available out at the welcome table. Uh, if you need an e-copy, electronic copy, just let us know and we'll send it your way. And then we're going to have a congregational meeting after worship next Sunday. And we'd love to have you. We'd love to share with you the budget. Yes, we want to share with you the budget. Jane, how much do you love me now? The budget is exciting. The budget is mission. The budget reveals God at work. The budget is faithfulness in action. I mean, let's get excited about a budget, people. You're awesome. You're good to your pastor always. Hey, friends, uh, let's just jump right in. I got a lot of good stuff to share. God's got a lot of good stuff for us this morning. It was the year 2000. The world didn't end. My computer didn't even crash, but I had a brand new baby. Eden was born on New Year's Day, the year 2000. Things were going great, and then they weren't going so great for us. Eden was born with severe hip dysplasia. That's a whole nother miracle story that I'm gonna share later in this series. But a couple weeks after that, I got a phone call. Robin's dad had a massive heart attack. She was in a meeting, so I let her finish the meeting. I started packing up the car, got everything ready. Robin got home. Oh, we were in Boston area. I was a seminary student at Gordon-Conwell. We were living at uh, Gordon College campus. So all that is transpiring. And uh, then I shared, of course, the news with, with Robin. Her dad had had a very severe heart attack, and we were going to have to head to London, Ontario, where he was being transported. There were no cell phones at that time, so we got the call, and then we were getting ready to get into the car, and there would be like radio silence, you know, for what I remember that would be about a 12-hour trip. The thing that I remember most about that is that Eden, because of the body brace that she was in, it was doubly uncomfortable for her to be put into a car seat. So she screamed, screamed anytime we had to take her anywhere. We got in the car. It was probably about 10 o'clock at night because we were hoping to be there for the morning. And uh, she just started screaming. She screamed all the way through Massachusetts. She screamed across the border into New York. She screamed all the way through Albany. I think it wasn't about Syracuse whenever she finally passed out. And she did pass out. She didn't fall asleep. I think it was screaming to the point of exhaustion and finally just, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And the whole time, in that radio silence of the year 2000, we couldn't afford cell phones at the time. It was just as you can imagine, as I want you to imagine it kind of being at that same place of desperation, that same journey that at some point you were taking, whether it was overnight, whether it was a few minutes, it felt like an eternity. You were waiting on a miracle. You were trying to muster up every bit of faith that you thought you had. You were trying to say the prayer that would move the hand of God. Uh, you, 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 you know, if it was there, you were calling for it. You needed a move from God. I have to believe all of us have been on a trip like that. We've been in a moment like that. We've had an experience like that. That is the experience we're about to read about in John chapter four, our second miracle or our second sign in our faith in focus 
series. Each one of these miracles, as we go between now and our beginning of the Easter season, the Lenten season, it's seven weeks, and we're taking the opportunity to go through the Gospel of John, where he picks seven miracles, seven signs that begin for us, the bringing into focus of who Jesus is, why he came, what he's going to do, what it will mean for us. A man is on a trip like this, and he is waiting for a miracle. He's praying to Jesus. He's praying to God. Who knows? He is just in a desperate situation. So let's, in a sense, put ourselves there. Put ourselves in that place, in that need, and read for us now here God, God's word. Let me say this as we go into this story, and I hope maybe this sets it up with a deeper openness for all of us to the story of a miracle. I'll start in a sense within a confession. I'm not always comfortable with the stories of Jesus's miracles. And here's why. I'd like to consider myself and fancy myself a very rational human being, <laughs> an intellectual perhaps in my better days, but not really so much. I am drawn to the story of Jesus. I am drawn to the teachings of Jesus. I am compelled by the moral and ethical example of Jesus. I love passages like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives challenging teaches that if we can wrap our heads around and begin living by, the world would truly be a better place. I can seek to learn the teachings of Jesus. I can even seek to live morally and ethically like Jesus. I can't do miracles. And if I'm honest, I've never met anybody who could wave their hand and do a miracle either. So the miracles by nature are challenging. They're challenging for me. And they should be challenging for all of us. But they shouldn't be avoided. We should seek to understand them. We should seek to apply them. We should seek a deeper connection with these miracles and what they mean about Jesus and what they can mean in our lives. With that said, let's try to be open to what the miracles, which again are outside of our abilities, but within the realm certainly of Jesus's life and ministry. So let's again now read another miracle story in the life of Jesus so we can seek a deeper understanding. Let me get my things fired up. It always seems to shut down, but here we go. John chapter four. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. We talked about that last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. 
When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Well, I'm happy to say Dan lived. It's been 22 years. He's had a rich, full life. He's seen his grandchildren grow up to become wonderful young adults. And we pray for many, many more years. And we give God the credit. We give God the glory for answering prayers and bringing restoration and health and more years to him. We've all been in that position, calling on Jesus, calling on God for a miracle, for an intervention. John, though, keeps reminding us that these aren't just miracles, these are signs. So let's go to the dictionary definitions. Here's fun stuff, right? Who doesn't love looking up dictionary definitions? What is a miracle? A miracle is an event not explicable by natural laws. So by nature, anytime we're asking for a miracle or asking God to supersede, to intervene, to transcend natural laws, and it says that it would be inexplicable any other way, because it's not explicable by natural laws, doesn't mean it's not explicable. We would, as people of faith, explain these again as a movement of God to supersede that which we see naturally in order in God's creation. Things that are outside of our control, outside of our abilities, we're asking God to supersede, intervene, to transcend. Again, do something that by nature cannot be done. We kind of get that intuitively. That's what we're asking for when we're asking for a miracle. But John keeps calling these signs. They're certainly both. It's a miracle. But the miracle, what God is doing, becomes for us a sign. Here's the definition of a sign. I was actually surprised at how short and how instructive it is. (laughs) A sign is an object, a gesture, or an action used to convey information and or instruction. An object, a sign, a gesture that will convey information and instruction. Each one of these signs, of course, then becomes for us information. This is information about who Jesus is and why he came and what he is doing. Each one of these miracles becomes a sign giving us information about Jesus Christ. But they are then for us also signs that provide instruction, instruction for us, instruction for how we might respond to the miracles of Jesus, instruction for us for how we might live in response to who Jesus is, instructions for us on how we might conduct ourselves by faith. So very powerfully over, again, the next several weeks, we want to be seeing each one of these miracles transcending the natural as more than just that, but information, information about who Jesus is and instruction for us as followers of Jesus. Now, we know what information, what instruction John is ultimately trying to guide us towards. We skipped ahead last week to the audacious abstract, we called it, right? The audacious abstract of John. Why does John say he's writing him all this, uh, the, the story of Jesus and telling us about these miracles and these signs? So that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing we might have 
life in his name. We might be saved. Again, that is a wonderfully audacious abstract. Hear the story of Jesus, believe he is the son of God, and by believing, have salvation, have eternal life. That is the ultimate information. That is the ultimate instruction where uh, Jesus, uh, John is trying to take us in the life of Jesus. Now, we started last week with the turning of the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. And we know the information and the instruction now that John is trying to teach us. The information and the instruction is that he was pointing from the first to the last. We had that third day motif. On the third day started the miracles and that the resurrection on the third day kind of ends the earthly ministry of Jesus. So we know that the first points to the last, that John is pulling this all together. He's going to be bookending for us the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But deeper than that, we have this instruction then that tells us all who believe in Jesus Christ, we have this promise that the best is yet to come. Just like the wine was the best at the last, the best is coming. No matter if we have many days ahead of us or a few days ahead of us on this earth, we all hold on to the promise that the best is yet to to come, whether our life has been filled with suffering or full of lots of joy, the best is yet to come. The best is when Christ comes again, sin is eradicated, the kingdom of God reigns and rules in our lives and in our world, and we live for that best that's yet to come. And now we are having a second miracle, a second miracle that's gonna give us more information and more instruction, of course, on who Jesus is and why he came. So let's begin to break down that little miracle and see how it might apply then for our lives. So Jesus has gone from Cana where he performed the miracle. He's gone on a little kind of road trip miracle tour. He's gone to Capernaum where probably this official we're going to encounter shortly has heard of or heard reference to this miracle worker, this wonderful teacher, Jesus Christ. Jesus moves on from there and he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We also get an insight that Jesus was doing more wondrous things. They said that they heard about the wondrous things that he was doing there at the Passover in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, of course, John has skipped over all of that. He wants to get us to this second miracle. Before he gets there though, he takes us through Samaria. Oh, actually, I should say this. When he's there at the Passover, we have actually one of the most famous discourses of uh, Jesus when he meets with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. John chapter three, some of you might be familiar with John 3.16, probably the most recognizable verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So we have some wonderful instruction and teaching there. And then before he, we, John gets on to this uh, second miracle story, he takes us through Samaria. And again, I gotta resist the urge to preach a whole sermon there because the encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria is amazing. But what we take from that, of course, what I want to take from that to highlight here the importance of this miracle is that what we read about there is that Jesus actually didn't perform any miracles. He didn't perform any miracles. He merely taught. He taught that he was the Messiah. He taught them the word of God. And through that teaching, through hearing the word of God, it says that they believed that many, many in Samaria came to belief. And then he ends up back in Cana. What John is doing here 
if we're gonna sink and soak here in kind of the, the moment, fully immerse ourselves in what's unfolding here, John is setting up a pretty powerful juxtaposition actually from the belief of the Samaritans who in a sense were outsiders to the people of his own, well, his own people, his own hometown, the people that he was most closely associated with demanding signs. He's setting up again, this powerful juxtaposition between hearing the word of God and then people demanding signs before they put their belief in Jesus. And he's setting us up. And that way he's setting us up for the same tension, this same juxtaposition. How much will you believe on the word of God? And how much are you also demanding in many senses a sign? How much are you demanding something from Jesus before you put your faith in him. What John is also setting up very profoundly for us as we lead up again and as we are going to be leading up to Easter and to our celebration during the Lenten season is how Jesus has truly come for everyone. So far, what we've already seen is that Jesus, John declares, is the light of the world. And from that story we have of the wise men, those magi from afar coming to Jesus and worshiping him, we see this ongoing narrative of Jesus reaching out to all kinds of people in all different kinds of places. I mean, here we see that Jesus is certainly loving his own. And we would clearly expect that. He's calling his own. He's calling his people. He's calling other people of the, of the nation of Israel, the people of God, to become disciples and following him. But then we see he's immediately calling outsiders. He's calling Samaritans. He's calling immoral, immoral people. People that say, oh, you know, how are, you know, they're not, not only just outsiders, but they're not living in a way that is glorifying to God. But then immediately next to that, we see Jesus calling a guy like Nicodemus, who is the most religious and the most moral person you could ever possibly meet. And then we see Jesus calling this guy who would actually be considered an enemy, but who's extraordinarily successful. He's an official, he's a centurion, we think. He has, he has servants, this is a successful guy. In many senses, we could say, who, who isn't Jesus calling? He's calling everybody. He's calling everybody to himself. He's calling enemies. He's calling outsiders. He's calling immoral people. He's calling religious people. And he's offering all of us something better. He's offering us himself. <laughs> and that's better. That's the best. Having a real living relationship with a real and living God is the best that Jesus is inviting us into. So that's a powerful setup that John is bringing us into as then he gets into this second miracle. Now, what happens in this miracle? We read that the centur this, I'm sorry, this official uh, hears that Jesus has gone back to Cana. And so he starts that trip. We know that that's about a 20 mile trip. We can imagine him is he has the interaction at one in the day. It's about seven hours and sun up, so to speak. So he's made this long trip. And again, put yourself in that position when you were making that, that, that miracle mile. I just found out the miracle mile is actually a neighborhood in LA. I thought it was something much more dramatic than that. But he's walking that miracle mile. He's, he's walking, he's praying, he's mustering up what other faith that he can have. He wants this miracle to happen. And then he gets there 
and he asked Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus has this kind of this, this strange, you know, kind of harsh words, right? Harsh words from Jesus. Unless you believe and he sees signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. And yet this man is so undeterred. He just doesn't miss a step. Sir, please come down to my place in Capernaum so that my son might live. And then we see that Jesus... Uh, just speaks a word over him. Go, your son uh, is healed. He believes him in faith. And then we read that as he's traveling there, the news is so good that his servants have met him at some point halfway and they share the great news. You know, sir, your son is going to live. The fever left him. Now he has that moment. He's like, oh, I, I, I gotta know. I kind of went in faith, but I gotta know when did it happen about the seventh hour? That is exactly when I encountered Jesus in Cana, that is exactly when this unfolded. And then we have that highlight to what is John really wanting us to understand? What is he really inviting us all to here? He says, he and his whole household, he, his wife, his child, other children probably, a household included servants, these servants, they all hear the story. They all grasp a bit of what's going on. It says that they all believe. They all came to faith. They all came to trust. They all came to a belief in Jesus. Many of them, of course, having not even met him personally. We read that we're all now willing to venture and put their faith, venture faith in Jesus at this time. And this, John says, is the second sign for us. Now, let me tell a little story to hook us before we want to go a little bit deeper in what this might mean for us. I love podcasts. I ride my bike or I go work out and I'm always listening to podcasts. And you can imagine as a pastor, I'm like always listening to sermons. I'm always looking to steal great information. I'll steal all the time and then give credit where credit is due. I'm always looking for a good sermon. I'm always listening to news. So why my podcast algorithm thought I would like this podcast called Wild Things, I have no idea. But I started to listen to this podcast called Wild Things. And it is the story of Siegfried and Roy. Why they thought I would love German magician illusionist animal trainers is beyond me. But I'm hooked. I'm hooked on Siegfried and Roy. I'm fascinated by this story. Here's the thing that's relevant for this. Siegfried and Roy were magicians. They were illusionists, and they never denied that. In fact, they raised that up. We are illusionists. It is magic. It is a show. We have curated every single element of what you are about to experience. It is a spectacle. We welcome you to come and experience, and we just hope that you will be in awe of what you see. When you know it's a magic, it's all about the show. And you just enjoy the show. But what we've had so far in these signs is that whenever it's all about the being a sign, it's all about the miracle. And it's all about what that is pointing to. If it's magic, it's a show. But if it's a miracle, it's a sign. I don't think we can emphasize this enough. Whenever he changes the water under the wine, there's no show says nobody knew except some of the servants and the disciples who witnessed what transpired. The MC, the master of ceremonies never knew. We don't get the impression that the family ever knew. We don't get the impression that the bridegroom or the bride ever knew. There was no show because it was a sign. It was a sign pointing to who Jesus was 
and why he came. And the same thing happens here whenever we get to this miracle, this second miracle, it becomes a sign. There's no show, there's no pomp, there's no circumstance, there's no explosions, there's no lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It's Jesus saying, your son is healed and the man leaves in faith and it happens. When you know it's a miracle, there's just a, there's a quiet confidence in Jesus, isn't there? There's like this confidence that he doesn't have to put it on display. He doesn't have to, again, make a big deal about it. He can just say it and it can happen. And that's so key to the heart of understanding that these miracles are actually signs pointing us to something much more significant than a show, than a spectacle could ever be. So what are three things then that we can take from this sign and allow them to be in a sense then signs, guideposts, directions for us? I'm gonna say these three things. I'm gonna teach on these three things for the last few minutes here. Uh, and I'm going to do so with a bit of trepidation. I just wanna be very clear on this before I, I go any, any further. Uh, as will be revealed in this, you know, God is not to be manipulated. God is not to be cajoled. I don't say this to say, insert these actions, insert these behaviors, insert these prayers, get desired, stated, wanted miracle in, in, in your life. That, that is not the nature of the relationship that we have with God or how it seems to work. And yet, I think there is still instruction for us instruction for our lives and how we can conduct ourselves and live into our faith. So again, the miracles are signs. The signs are informing us about who Jesus is and what he can do. But a sign being instruction, I do want to venture some faith to say, how can these instruct and guide us when we find ourselves calling for a miracle? Because I'm guessing you already have. <laughs> I'm guessing you will again. I'm guessing right now you already know how you might be applying the three things I'm about to say before you even leave the room because you already have something going on in your life that you're saying, I would really like to see God intervene in this situation. Okay, with that set up, whoo, dramatic. First thing we seem to see, go where you see God at work. Go where you see God at work. This guy, this official, he is in Capernaum, 20 miles from Cana. He hears that Jesus has gone back to Cana. He hears that a miracle has already been performed in Cana. So he gets the idea, instead of just praying to God, why don't I go to where God seems to be at work? And so he gets up and he goes. And I think there is something for us to, in a sense, get up and go to where we see God at work. I would invite you, I would urge you, I would compel you. If you see God at work somewhere, go. And if you see God at work somewhere and you're going, call me and bring me along because I like to see God at work. I would also say, I see God at work in our church. I see God at work in the community of faith here. I think you are already making that move and I just wanna give you the encouragement to keep living into that. Keep going where the people of faith show up. Keep going where songs are lifted in his name. Keep going where prayers are lifted up. Keep going where you see God at work and I believe God is at work 
in our lives and in our community. And let's become now a community of people who talk more openly, more frankly, uh, more faithfully about our need for God to intervene and intersect with our lives. Let us not be shy or afraid to come boldly begging for Jesus to intervene. We see a great history of people get up, getting up and going to where God is calling them, going to where they seem to see God at work. When God called Abram, he had to get up and go, and he had to be going for about 20 years before the breakthrough happened, but he kept seeking to faithfully follow where God was calling him to go. When God was bringing the people out of Egypt, out of their land of captivity, he got them up and they went to the Red Sea before the Red Sea parted, but they went in faith. They went to where God was calling them. They went to where they believed God would intersect with their lives and intervene and bring them into the promised land, and they went in faith. We just sung about the song earlier in the service when God was bringing them to the promised land. God said to Joshua, go and march around that city seven times. And uh, I could preach a whole other sermon on that, but you can imagine the faith that it took to get up and go and to march around that city. I can imagine the first day, the city was probably pretty scared. Oh, we've heard about this God. What's gonna happen? By about that sixth day, it might be like, is anything gonna happen? By about that seventh day, it may have been like, ah, throw tomatoes at them and mock them. But they kept faithfully walking around those walls till God brought them the miracle that they were calling for. God brought them the miracle that they were promised. People, go to where you see God at work and there just seems to be something to this dynamic. And again, I wanna say this with some trepidation, put some skin in the game. Again, I don't want it to go to the place where we think that we're manipulating or cajoling God to do our will, but show God your willingness to put some skin in the game, to invest your faith, to make that miracle mile trip, to walk that path, to walk around those walls, to go to the water's edge, whichever story resonates with you and in your heart and where God is taking you, put your skin in the game and go faithfully. Show God your commitment. Come to church and ask us to pray with you. Commit to a season of prayer with a partner. Say, there seems to be a pattern in the Bible where things happen in 40 days. Would you pray with me for 40 days for God to intervene and intersect in my life? And then check in with each other every single day for 40 days. I do that whenever somebody comes to me and some of you have come to me and you say, I want God to do this in my life. That's when I have that moment with you and I say, are you serious? And whenever you say yes, that's when I say, then we're gonna pray for 40 days. And we're gonna check in day in and day out about what God is doing. And if we see God do what we're asking, we are gonna party and celebrate and declare how good God is. Put that skin in the game, make that investment, pray fast, worship God, commit to it. Okay, go where God is at work, invest, put some skin in the game. Second, I love this, don't take no for an answer. Jesus seems to say no at first. Ah, will you come? My son is sick, will you heal him? Ah, you people, all you want is signs before you believe. He is completely undeterred. And I love that. It's like he doesn't even hear what Jesus says when Jesus seems to say no. Sir, please come and heal my son. Don't 
take no for an answer. Again, this seems to be the invitation of Jesus to say, exercise faith and be persistent. The invitation for us, I mean, it's explicit in the teachings of Jesus when he tells a story about this persistent widow. The disciples are asking about prayer again, and he's gonna teach them more about how we come to God. And he tells them this story. There was once this widow and she had this case and the judge didn't care. More so, it says the, the, the judge didn't even care about justice. The judge didn't even care about God. He said, this widow just came every day knocking on the judge's door, you know, give me my justice, give me my justice, hear my case, give me my justice. And Jesus says, finally, the judge relented, not because he cared about the widow, not because he believed and feared God, but because the woman was just so persistent, he finally relented. And Jesus says, Pray like that. I gotta say that's challenging for me. The invitation to annoy God. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, really? Okay, God, I'm gonna come to you once again, every day knocking at that door. I mean, just be persistent. It, it appears that God actually welcomes that tenacity of faith. We see it in that official. We see it in the persistent widow. Maybe he needs to see it more in us. Maybe he just wants to see that persistence, that tenacity more in his people. So let's be tenacious and persistent and go to him and not take no for an answer. The last thing then to say, um, we go forward then in, in faith. So, so he goes to Jesus, right? He's kind of going in faith there. And then he, he doesn't take no for an answer. He gets this word and he has no proof yet that that word has come true. But he leaves, he walks away, and he starts to head back. So at some point, when we go where we see God is at work, and we're inviting God to make this move in our lives, we've been persistent in our requests, we've been persistent in our prayers. At some point, when we hear a word, when we get a feeling, we get an urge, we see this breakthrough, then we kind of return, we go back, we trust then in faith that God has heard this prayer and is doing something with it. Again, I don't know exactly how all this works out, but this is just seems to be the instruction where we're being pointed by this miracle being a sign for us. He goes in faith, he trusts in God, and there he gets then this great news. Your prayers have been answered. Your son is well. When was he well? At the seventh hour. That is exactly when I talked with Jesus and he and his whole household believed. Here's how I think it might begin to intersect and, and act in our lives. Are we already then, are we already showing our faith by responding to and acting on the things that Jesus has already told us? I, I started with my admission that I'm drawn to the teachings of Jesus and things like the Sermon on the Mount and the miracles are a bit harder for me to wrap my head around. Well, when I think about that, when I say that out loud, then of course I have to be honest with myself and to say, oh, so George, for somebody who's just admitted how much you love the teachings and the instructions of Jesus and something like the Sermon on the Mount, how much are you faithfully living by the instructions on the Sermon on the Mount? Have you really taken it to heart whenever you hold anger in your heart? It's like you're murdering a brother or sister in faith. Have you really taken it to heart that whenever you have lust hiding in there, it's like you're already committing adultery against your wife. I can hardly look at her and think of that. George, George, I've already told you you have to love your enemy. Why are you still praying for my vengeance upon them? I want you to go and love them. I already told you you can't love money more than me. So why do you spend more of your day worrying about your money 
and seeking to be faithful to me. Hey, George, I told you, you, just, told you, you just shouldn't worry at all. <laughs> so why do I find anxiety, worry, stress welling up so often in my life? If I am so in love with the teachings of Jesus, then why am I not acting more faithfully on them? I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to beat myself up. I'm actually trying to encourage faith. What I'm just saying is when God has already been so clear, when Jesus has already been so clear on things that we can act on in faith, why don't we start acting on these clear teachings of Jesus, these clear instructions from God? Why don't we start acting on those things in faith and then have a more confident faith that will say, and maybe God can move a miracle by my faithfulness, by my prayers, by my demonstration of putting some skin in the game. Again, let's not tip over into manipulating God or ever thinking that we can, but let us embrace a faith that says sometimes our prayers, our faith, our movement, our action does seem to actually move the hand of God. We get up and we go and we act in faith. Let me call Carlos to come up and he can get ready to lead us out with some more worship we can ponder this revelation of God for us. And let me just wrap it up here with kind of a story of faithfulness, a story of getting up and going. And it's a story of coming here, actually. It's a story of my ending up on this platform, on this stage, in this worship center right here and right now. It was several years ago that God was kind of moving and Robin and I and our family that the stage of planting in Canada was coming to an end and we are exploring and praying about where God might lead us to go. And you know what? There came a time where we just had to put some skin in the game and get up and go. And when I think about what we did in that movement about eight years ago, uh, it, was, it was crazy. We came here and all we had was a board, a missions board with the Christian Reformed Church saying, well, we'll support you. We won't kick you out if you go <laughs> to seek to plant a church. I had a couple people uh, in churches willing to pray for us and give us a little bit of funding. And I had a church that said, well, if you do come here, you could like hang out and have an office here, I guess. And maybe, you, you know, we work out of here in Littleton. And we went, we went with fear. We went with trepidation, but we went with faith and we prayed and we fasted and we walked around the city and and look where god has brought us look where god has brought us now as a community where can god bring you when you're willing to act on faith to get up and go to see where god is at work to put some skin in the game to be persistent in your prayer and then to move in faith when you hear him calling upon you let me say a prayer for us. And as I say this prayer, what I want you to actually feel free to do, if, if my voice kind of just sort of fades off into the distant now, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. Because the invitation now is for you to seek God where he might be leading you for that breakthrough, breakthrough for that miracle, for that sign in your life. If there isn't anything in your life right now, there will be. <laughs> There will be. So let's take to heart this invitation that John gives us, that Jesus really gives us. Let me pray.